Prior to starting the show, I wanted to let you know that this was recorded on July 13, prior to the signing of the Hong Kong Autonomy Act and the reversal of the Trump administration's policy on residency of international students. Although some of our analysis was overtaken by events, we thought the broader conversation on America's policy toward China and the soft power implications of immigration was still worth your attention. With that being said, on with the show. What's going on in Xinjiang right now is nothing if not a genocide. It is the week of July 13th, and welcome to episode 33 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today we have Dana Struhl, former senior staff member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Jamil Jaffer, NSI founder and executive director, and the former chief counsel and senior advisor of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Jody Herman, former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and myself, Lester Munson, a senior fellow at NSI and also the former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. This week, we're focusing at first on China and what's going on in Xinjiang province. A couple of weeks ago, Congress passed and the president signed sanctions against Chinese officials that are implementing the horrendous human rights practices in Xinjiang province against the Chinese Uyghur Muslim population. And interestingly, Jamil, right as the president signed this was when the stories from the John Bolton book were coming out, including Bolton saying that President Trump had basically told President Xi of China, hey, it's okay what you're doing in Xinjiang province. If that's what you need to do, you got to do it. Jamil, what's your take on how the U.S. government, both Congress and the president, have responded thus far to what's happening to the Uyghurs in China? Well, clearly we need to be doing more. We need to be building an international coalition along the lines that we did with South Africa and apartheid. Because what we're seeing here in Xinjiang and with the Uyghurs is nothing short of the beginnings of a genocide, if not already that. And uh, it's obviously deeply concerning. This represents a larger problem with the Chinese government, the repression of religion, not just against Muslims, but against uh, Christians and Buddhists. Uh, it's longstanding. And it's a larger problem with Chinese. We all thought that bringing free trade to China and commerce to China would evolve their way they treated uh, their own people. And it's been a complete failure. Republicans and Democrats were wrong about that. The Chinese are resolute in their decision to be authoritarian uh, and to be oppressive to minorities, religious minorities, and others within their own community. And we can't stand for it any longer. What they're doing to these people is unacceptable. The fact that the United States has even done something about it is actually embarrassing for the rest of the world, embarrassing for the Muslim world, which has completely failed to stand up to the Chinese. The notional leaders of the Muslim world, at least in Sunni Islam, the Saudis, have been a complete failure uh, when it comes to China policy. And so uh, the president obviously you know, is all over the map on this. He has tweeted about the uh, repression in China, as has Secretary Pompeo, been very forward-leaning on this issue, probably the most forward-leaning amongst world leaders. And the U.S. Congress is getting out ahead of this issue. But if the president really is where he is and he said it to President Xi, it doesn't matter that we're imposing these sanctions if the president of the United States is giving Xi the green light, which uh, a lot of other nations of the world have done also. And so if we're going to be serious about this, we need to get serious. We need to assemble a global coalition and impose strangling sanctions on the Chinese, not just against their own government, but against the companies that are operating uh, in this region are the arms and the, the elements of oppression uh, that are doing their work in this space. Jamil, before we go to our Democratic friends to talk about how President Joe Biden might respond to this, let me push a little bit on what the Trump administration can and should be doing. Realistically, there's a huge economic relationship between the U.S. and China. It's the biggest bilateral economic relationship in the world. 
by far. How far can we really go in disconnecting our economy from China's in protest over what's going on in Xinjiang? Yeah, look, I don't think it's realistic, Les, to expect this to decouple our economies uh, completely from China. That's completely unrealistic. But the reality is, is that there's a lot more we can do. We've seen uh, what we can do through tariffs and trade measures with respect to China and how much pressure that can put on them. Remember, your point about it being a bilateral trade relationship, Les, it's not just that we buy a ton of goods from China, which we do. I mean, every good that I have in my house, almost every one of them has some component made in China, if not completely made in China, right? Uh, but they depend on us as a market. And yes, those trade measures and additional measures will be costly. It will cost the American people some amount of money and some amount of pain uh, to go through this. But the question is, is the pain worth it? And are we ready to sustain the pain? And frankly, that is about leadership. And that is something that we lack right at the top today. If we had good, strong leadership that was resolute on these issues, uh, then we'd be able to move forward. Now, I do think that the Secretary of State has been resolute in his support of the Chinese Uyghurs. I think there is more to be done. I think Congress is there too. And I think the president could get there. You know, I was surprised to read what we read in the Bolton book because by public uh, image, it looked the opposite. But the real question is, let's say we have a President Joe Biden. Will he be resolute in his decision to stand with the Chinese? Because let's be candid, President Obama was not. Dana, Jody, where will a potential Biden administration go on China? Will it agree that a little bit of economic pain for Americans is worth the benefit of showing China how much we care about the Xinjiang oppression? First, let me say this, and I hate to say it, but Jamil's right. It does happen occasionally, but really, like, seriously, what's going on in Xinjiang right now is nothing if not a genocide, right? Like, the definition of a genocide is an action that's intended to destroy a people for ethnic, racial, religious regions, but really, it's an intention to destroy a people, and that is absolutely what is going on in Western China. China is overtly trying to either assimilate, kill off, or sterilize Uyghurs in order to basically make them disappear into the Han Chinese population. Like, it is the most dramatic thing uh, we've seen of this kind in many years. And the question is, like, what the hell are we going to do about it? Like, what is the United States going to do? What is the world going to do? So, yeah, it's fantastic. We've imposed some global Magnitsky sanctions. I think those are, are useful. We've said it a lot of times on this podcast. They're really, really useful. People in China like to come to the United States. They like to send their kids to school in the United States. States in a way that we don't uh, reciprocate, right? Like Americans might go to China, they might study English for a year, but we're not sending American students to China to get their entire education, right? So that's a really impactful thing that we can do. But what we're really getting at here is like, are we willing to do more than visa bans and asset freezes on a handful of officials? And the answer has got to be a resounding yes. So we can look at punitive trade measures on products, any product that we can identify that is in that Uyghur labor supply chain. That is what will have to happen in order to turn this off. Maybe we can't force China to stop, but we can make them pay for it. Dana, what do you say? And what will a President Biden do about this? So I also agree with Jamil on the need for collective action for international coalition building. And I think that is a key area where a Biden administration would be different from the Trump administration. So a lot of the Trump administration's efforts to hold Chinese officials accountable for the genocide are the correct policies. The problem is they're executed bilaterally and they would be much more effective if there was a coalition of the willing committed to standing up to China in addition to the United States. And the European Union is actually a great example of a 
ripe area for that kind of collective action, having been burned by attempting to open up to China. And EU is a major export market for the Chinese as well. So I think a key difference when Jody talks about identifying supply chain Chinese origin exports that have been made by forced labor by the Uyghur population, this is a great example of not just enforcing it, doing that work here in the United States, but then building a coalition perhaps of democracies and others to stand up to the Chinese as well. And this should matter for Muslim majorities, all Muslim majority countries, but especially those that purport to lead the Muslim world in the Middle East. This is another example where the Trump administration not only doesn't prioritize human rights issues in the Middle East itself, but also doesn't encourage those countries and governments to stand up for human rights violations in other parts of the world. And again, here is an example where I think you'd see a Biden administration attempting to build coalitions, constellations of governments to both call out name and shame, as well as impose punitive measures. The other possible thing they can do that you might imagine that a Biden administration would do would be to pick up on the effort of kind of Chinese external Uyghur groups who have filed a case, who have filed evidence with the International Criminal Court, right? So the U.S. has information that it could share in this regard in order to support that case. I can absolutely see that as being something that a Biden administration would take action on that would be hard for this administration to do, given its position on the criminal court. And actually, that makes me think of another way you'd probably see the Biden administration act differently, and that's through international organizations. So there hasn't been a robust debate about this. There's been... I think one UN agency that said that what's happening in Xinjiang province meets the criteria for genocide, but you haven't seen a robust debate about this at the Security Council. You haven't seen the Chinese forced to veto resolutions, holding them accountable for what's taking place inside their territory. These are probably places where you'd see the Biden administration attempt to restore U.S. leadership and global standing. So realistically, my friends, the Biden campaign has been remarkably silent on foreign policy issues. Uh, there was recently, in the last few days, a unity document between the Bernie Sanders folks and the Joe Biden folks, a panel co-chaired by John Kerry and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And this unity document did not mention a single thing about foreign policy issues. And it does not seem to me that the campaign is going to be willing to take any risks on these issues that might threaten economic growth and U.S. national strength. What's the evidence for the potential Biden presidency actually being tougher on the Chinese than the Trump administration. So one is that there have been specific statements, suggestions by Vice President Biden in certain debates. There's also been several of his top campaign officials who have spoken about the differences in what a Biden administration China policy would look like as compared to a Trump administration. And also, let's not forget that the 2017 national defense strategy, this notion of China as a strategic competitor is not this novel idea that started with Jim Mattis. The Obama administration did attempt to prioritize strategic competition with China. Unfortunately, it was called the Asia-Pacific pivot, and then it was later called the rebalance. But there were several efforts to acknowledge the threats from China. That's number one. And number two, I think the reason you're not seeing foreign policy issues raised right now is, is two other reasons less. One is that Americans, frankly, and most of the world just aren't focused on major foreign policy issues right now. They're focused on how their own societies are dealing with COVID-19, a huge pandemic and the associated global economic recession, number one. And number two, foreign policy issues are traditionally not really winning topics. And finally, I think that there is a real delicate way to criticize actions of the Chinese government while not 
also stirring up anti-Asian or anti-Asian American sentiment. These are very careful lines to walk. And finally, the Biden team, it seems to me, is trying to respect one government at a time and not undermine the Trump administration, which is what the Trump team pre his inauguration did in terms of exercising or attempting to undermine Obama administration policies in the lead up to his inauguration. So I think some of it is about trying to restore the system and separation of government and and what is appropriate for a campaign and what's appropriate for a governing team that's in power. Two, foreign policy issues are just not top of the docket right now. And three, there's been plenty of people around the vice president who have spoken out about how their China policy would be different from the current administration's. Jamil, the Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act, which is the bill passed by Congress and signed by President Trump, lets the president waive sanctions based on national security concerns. Do you think the president is going to pass up the opportunity to do that if he thinks he can get a big uh, trade deal with China? Well, I mean, that is obviously the big worry. We've seen uh, these type of national security waivers misused by prior administrations, uh, most famously in the Iran nuclear deal. But I do think that we will see the president uh, reach for that tool because I do think the president sees the situation with China as central to his ability to get the economy restarted and potentially to try and win re-election. So I think the president is looking to try and do a deal with China. And I think the Chinese understand that the president wants and needs a deal. And I think we'll be looking at questions like the Huawei issue, as well as the Uyghur issue, and then look to trade those issues for agricultural supports and the like. We've seen what the Bolton book said about the president's interests and and his desires to make deals with the Chinese and what he said to President Xi. And whether or not, you know, the Bolton book is accurate really will tell us whether the president's willing to make those deals. And so if if you believe what the Bolton book says, which I think there's every reason to believe they told an accurate story, whatever you think about John Bolton, there's no reason to believe that he didn't tell an accurate story in there. I mean, if that's all true, it's very concerning about what the president sees as his reelection prospects, his prospects for uh, getting the economy restarted in the post-COVID environment and what he building to do trade. And whether that includes the Uyghurs or Huawei and the national security issues there is very much open to debate. And we'll see what happens over the next few weeks and months. I have another thought here, which is, you know, as much as Trump was committed to getting a trade deal, he wasn't making the progress that he wanted, not even really a little bit. I actually think kind of perversely that China's actions vis-a-vis the Uyghurs in Hong Kong might actually provide him an out for not actually getting a trade deal. Like he was trying to figure out what the hell he was going to do if he didn't have a trade deal come November. And these issues, he may be able to double down on these issues in a way that we maybe like, actually, like there's actually a good thing, but maybe not doing it for exactly the right reason. But it gives him an out for not having accomplished his campaign goal. I would love if Joe were right about that. I worry, though, that what, what's happening here is the reason why the president hasn't made progress is the Chinese recognize they gain additional leverage the closer and closer it gets to the election. And so, you know, like happened to the Iran nuclear deal, you know, the Iranians stretch the time frame out as much as possible, you know, bringing the president closer and closer to getting to the end of his presidency, him wanting to get a deal done. I think the same is true with the president. I think that what you're seeing here is that the Chinese are prepared to do a deal. The question is, what are they going to get for it? And uh, what can they hold the president's feet to the fire on? I think that's where it'll get really interesting. Let's flex to Hong Kong, which, of course, a very similar issue with the passage of this or the imposition of this national security law by Beijing on Hong Kong. The Chinese Communist Party has effectively ended any kind of independence for Hong Kong. There's no longer any kind of idea of two systems going on between China and Hong Kong. And it's already leading to various repressive measures and some rather totalitarian big brother tactics. 
Congress and the president have also responded with sanctions legislation and some some mild steps by the White House to punish those who are implementing the new security law. Do we think any of this is going to result in a change in Chinese behavior? I don't know, Les. I don't think that we're looking at an imminent change in Chinese behavior. I actually think that China was a little taken back by the strength of the U.S. response and, frankly, what's still coming, right? So we've got this Hong Kong Autonomy Act, the Toomey Van Hollen bill that maybe will be signed into law soon, right? So this just happened at the end of last week. So maybe it's going to be signed into law soon. And it's pretty significant, right? So it has the potential for financial sanctions. that are akin to the financial sanctions that we impose on Iran, a country with which we have basically no financial ties. It doesn't start there, but it provides the possibility of landing in that place where we would cut off uh, banking relationships with certain Chinese entities if they, you know, had some responsibility for developments in Hong Kong. I think that's pretty shocking to the Chinese. And then Australia and England are willing to provide a certain number of visas or maybe even passports to Hong Kong refugees. And I think you see a little bit of movement on this in the U.S. Congress as well. Senators Menendez and Rubio have legislation out there that is not quite what England and Australia are offering. They're offering priority to refugee status for people who are forced to flee because of their current actions. But I think you could actually see more on that, particularly more from a Biden administration on that particular issue. I could imagine the U.S. opening up that space more significantly, providing real asylum refugee status to people fleeing Hong Kong, not just those people who've been involved in the protests up to now, but people who feel like they need to leave the country. Dana, what's your take? Not surprising. I agree with Jody. Again, I think it's not just about the bilateral response. I think the difference with the Joe Biden administration is you see much more decisive efforts to cooperate and cooperate coordinate with like-minded democracies who want to call out what's happened, the imposition of the national security law in Hong Kong, also likely more cooperation with Congress. The more that Congress, the legislative branch and the executive branch can speak together rather than it looking like the executive branch has been dragged into imposing something by Congress is better in my view. Certainly on refugees, not just related to Hong Kong residents, but refugees writ large, you'd see a night and day difference in how a Biden administration would approach that. I certainly share your skepticism and maybe even animus for the way the current president talks about some of our allies and the way he kind of downplays the importance of alliances. But realistically, how much do we think Joe Biden just showing up in office is going to change the way other countries act on the international stage. I mean, foreign capitals make decisions based on a real hard-eyed view of their interests, not on whether the U.S. president is being nice to them or not. So do you really think that just by Joe Biden showing up and saying he's going to pay more attention to allies is really going to change some of these outcomes all that much? No, it's not just about showing up in office. The Trump administration is deliberately taking, undertaking and implementing policies that antagonize our traditional and historic allies, whether it's tariffs on French luxury goods, all sorts of ways in which at a time of heightened vulnerability because of a global pandemic, because of a global economic recession, the Trump administration is making it not just not prioritizing cooperation with our allies, but actively implementing policies that our allies see as detrimental to their own national security, economic security, public health security, et cetera. So I don't think it's about just showing up in office, although I do think there's going to obviously be an initial honeymoon period. But I think a Joe Biden administration would immediately start to put policies in place that would make it more desirable 
for allies to work with us. It seems to me that the extent to which Joe Biden is portraying himself as different than the president, he's kind of doubling down on the Buy America idea and on the idea of a strong national economy, investing domestically and kind of, in a way, although he's not saying this specifically, turning away from international concerns, much as the Trump administration has done, maybe even more so. Where's the tangible evidence in things the president has said that he will actually make economic decisions? And by that, I mean related to trade, sanctions, tariffs, immigration, that kind of thing, all that different from the Trump administration. Well, I think you're almost talking about two different things, right? Like the question was, will things be different on day one with Joe Biden? And I think the answer is yes, right? So I think it has to do with our allies understanding the relationship that they have with this country. So up until this administration, there was a full expectation by our allies of cooperation. And we shouldn't underestimate what that cooperation means, right? It's basically like a small friendship circle like we don't always get along, but we do always tell each other what we're doing and we have each other's backs on different issues. Having said that, I mean, you're not wrong, Les. Joe Biden comes out of kind of blue collar Delaware and has traditionally had an interest in backing investment in U.S. domestic production and manufacturing. And I think that's okay. In fact, it is one of the things that we have seen over the last several decades of our over-reliance on foreign production, right? So there is some need to bring some key manufacturing and production back to this country. But I don't think that's at odds with how we carry out our foreign policy. We can walk and chew gum on those two issues. Jamil, let me start with you and turn to our second topic, which is some of these discrete immigration issues that have popped up in the last couple of days. Uh, one is the Trump administration to rescind visas for college and graduate students who aren't actually taking in-person classes. In other words, if they're doing their classes remotely through Zoom or whatever, then they can stay in their home country and do it. They don't need to come here. The second is this policy by the administration, which I think struck a lot of us as totally bananas, to not extend visas for foreign nationals who were working here in the United States for the Voice of America. A lot of the folks who do work for Voice of America in different languages come from other countries. They need visas to work here. The administration just announced a kind of blanket policy of sending them all back home over the next few months because they're not going to extend their visas. What's your take on what the administration is doing here on these more discrete immigration issues, which are a little more nuanced than the stuff we've seen before? Yeah, I mean, this strikes me is, is sort of a bizarre approach. I mean, clearly the administration is seeking to play to what it perceives as the base of its constituency uh, that is anti-immigrant and is reactionary in that sense. And so in a lot of ways, the in-person requirement is odd because we're trying to get back to in-person teaching. The president and Betsy DeVos, in fact, at least for American students, has pressed hard to put schools back in the position of getting students back in class. And so it is odd for the president and his team to be sort of leveraging the sort of online or mixed learning situation against foreigners who we brought here uh, and who are paying, frankly, good tuition dollars to be trained here. You know, it's, it's a larger problem with our immigration policy when it comes to education, right? Today, we allow students to come here in large numbers, educate them with this excellent education in the United States, and then force them to go back home and innovate in their home countries. To the extent they can stay here, they have to have a job, an H-1B visa, which is expensive and hard to get, and the like. It's a bizarre immigration policy already when it comes to education, particularly higher education, uh, it's just become even more bizarre now. And what you have schools doing is now trying to sort of work the system and, and have in-person meetings with students so they can keep their students here. I mean, these are students here who have agreed to come to U.S. universities that are creating revenue for U.S. institutions, generating economic 
economic benefits for Americans, and we're pushing them out. I mean, it is insane. And then the Voice of America, which is literally our sort of overt opportunity to convey messages to the rest of the world, we use foreign nationals because they speak the language in local vernacular. The idea that we're going to go boot those people out too, the entire situation is bizarre. Uh, It looks like it comes from a sort of uh, reactionary move towards the base uh, or the perceived base. Uh, and I think it's I think it's 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 the wrong policy for all the wrong reasons. So I agree with Jamil and I want to add a few things. The first one is that bringing foreign students to our universities and schools, it's not just about our economy, although it's a huge source of revenue for our universities and very much supplements given how expensive college level education is these days. But number two, it is a huge pillar of American soft power. So it's not just about the education. It's about all of these foreign students coming, mixing with American students, with U.S. citizens, having positive experiences, seeing what it is like to live in an actual, for many of them, in in a democracy with freedom of expression, freedom of debate, academic rigor, academic debate, etc. Some of them stay here, as Jamil said, and some of them go home. And hopefully many of them speak very fondly of their experiences, the building of that connective tissue, those ties to Americans, friends, etc. The cultural brand of what American universities and the American college experience is, is huge. So again, if the idea of the Trump administration is America first, which for me, is America alone, America isolated, this is perfect. The idea is to have all these kids who want to get a really good university education go somewhere else, not only with their money, but to develop those cultural ties, to develop those relationships, which are in our interest, just to make them somewhere else. And two, with the foreign journalists and Voice of America, it's not just about everything, Jamil says, it's the dismantling of the infrastructure, the dismantling of an entire program that's been wildly successful of promoting actual rigorous journalism, freedom of speech, the way these organizations actually work. It's not something that's going to easily be built back, even if there's a Joe Biden administration. All these people are going to go home. They're going to find other jobs. This has taken years of leadership and congressional support to develop the robust organizations we have under the U.S. Agency for Global Media. So again, this is the radical dismantling of the various areas of American global leadership and influence um, that were articulated in the early days of the Trump campaign. You're seeing it fully realized now. All of us are parents, and we were we were talking before the podcast about how the shutdown and education are going to kind of run into each other here in the fall and what that means for our families. And everyone has a personal situation and a, and a way they react to it. I bring that up because it seems to me that the administration initiative here on banning foreign students who aren't actually going to class is all about domestic policy politics here. And what the administration is really trying to do is pressure colleges to reopen in as normal a way as possible. The president on down thinks this is the wedge issue that's going to work in November. They've kind of screwed up on masks. You see that the president was anti-mask. Now he's willing to wear a mask. A lot of the other things have, have been fumbled, but they're kind of pinning their hopes electorally in November on this idea that the Trump administration is for kids going back to school and Democrats are against kids going back to school. What's your take on it? Yeah, I, I agree with that. I don't think this is an immigration issue. I think it's a COVID issue and I think it's a political messaging issue. At the same time, I think both this issue around university students and international students and this issue with potentially turning off J-1 visas for foreign journalists are 
pretty short term political wins, if they're wins at all for the White House. So on the issue of international students, I think there's going to be some pretty quick workarounds by universities. Like it literally took like maybe 24 hours for universities to start speculating how they would work around this rule. Right. So fine for all of our international students, we're going to have a class once a week that allows you to say that you're not only doing online classes. So I think the message is awful. I think it probably deters over time international students from coming to this country for the education for all of the great reasons that Dana articulated. That's a good thing for us, not to mention the fact that they contribute a lot uh, to the U.S. economy and they pay something like 30 percent of total tuition revenue at public universities. So what that means for most Americans is if foreign students are paying more, theoretically, American students can be paying less. But I think on the student front, I think very, very clear, very quickly that universities will have a very quick workaround. On the issue of foreign journalists, less just to say on the short term issue, like this has already happened. So the House State and Foreign Operations Appropriations Subcommittee already marked up last week. So these steps by Michael Pack at the U.S. Agency for Global Media to start dismantling uh, the broadcasting networks happened before they marked up. And you already see language in the committee's subcommittee's report and a $174 million cut to last year's appropriation for the U.S. Agency for Global Media with language that specifically points to these actions and says that the committee on a bipartisan basis will be holding the agency leadership accountable here and will only reverse that change when it sees changes being made on the other side. You know, Jamil, this whole visa issue with the Voice of America reporters kind of highlights for me the view we had on the Hill for years, which was that the Broadcasting Board of Governors, the old version of the Agency for Global Media, was a messed up institution that was mismanaged, that was poorly structured, that had too many voices, that was cumbersome, that didn't really get the job done. Now it seems like it was a terrific idea that made a lot of sense and prevented a lot of bad things from happening. And this new U.S. Agency for Global Media, which a lot of us worked on the legislation as that was going through Congress or different versions of it, seemed like a sensible reform. Now that it's in the hands of an ally of Steve Bannon, who is a first order nut job, seems to be a really bad idea. Should we just repeal the legislation that created USAGM and go back to the old model? Well, I was never a fan of recreating the U.S. Information Agency. We had uh, done this once before, uh, or in fact, many times before. This has been a cycle of things with U.S. Uh, overt influence operations. Um, and uh, and so, you know, whether we needed the AGM or not, I think is a debatable point. And whether it's a successful uh, institution, I think is a different question from its current leadership and the actions they've taken. Right. So uh, putting aside the debate over whether having an agency that does this and whether it has the right mission and, and it's the right structure and whatever, uh, that's one debate. Another question of whether its current leadership is successful and whether it's the institution that makes them unsuccessful or their own uh, poor choices. I mean, obviously, uh, the firing of a superstar leader like Jamie Fly at RFE uh, RL, uh, you know, just demonstrates the chaos and silliness of the current leadership at that agency. I don't think that bespeaks a problem with the agency itself. I have different issues with the agency, but I don't think you get rid of the agency because the people who are running it are not competent. The problem we have, of course, is that the people that have been appointed to these jobs are not good at them, uh, don't have experience, uh, don't understand the agencies that are leading. Frankly, aren't acting in the U.S. interest when it comes to what these
these agencies should be doing. Now, look, at the end of the day, we give the president a fairly free hand in making these judgments and appointing his people to these positions and the like. And obviously, in inappropriate positions, the Senate plays a role. But you look at the appointments in various agencies, you look at the number of positions that have left unfilled. And frankly, you look at some of the people that have been subject to Senate uh, confirmation uh, that have made it through. And the record is not stellar. All right, let's flex to our final topic, which is uh, we'll go around the horn and talk about the issues we're following that are not necessarily on the front page. I am going to take the prerogative of going first and point out that in the past two weeks, approximately, there have been over half a dozen explosions at major industrial sites in Iran, several of them directly related to Iran's nuclear program. By the way, Jamil, did you know that the nuclear program was not dismantled in Iran and they still have nuclear facilities there? Isn't that pretty shocking? I was told that it was going to be gone, just like I was told that we were going to be back at church on Easter. I was told the Iran nuclear program would be gone within within months and years. I was also told there would be no chemical weapons in Syria, but oh well. You can you can take that promise uh, to the bank for a uh, You were also a told we were going to be winning all the time when Donald Trump. So one of one of the one of the places that was uh, blown up or had a fire or an explosion at it was one of the places where the Iranians have been manufacturing advanced centrifuges, which are the devices that refine uranium that allow them to weaponize it and turn it into nuclear weapons, which is really the heart of the matter. So it's unclear who is doing it. Not a lot of people are talking. Uh, some of the experts that we all dealt with back during Iran nuclear agreement days are saying that this is definitely some sort of subterfuge and intentional sabotage going on in Iran. But it is it is fascinating to follow, and it's notable that it's happening here four months before a U.S. election. All right, so that's what I'm following. Dana, what are you looking at? I just raised my eyebrows last week when the president of Brazil, Bolsonaro, was diagnosed with COVID-19, given his challenging of the Brazilian Ministry of Health on their recommendations for responding, the resignation of Brazil's health minister, Bolsonaro's active denial about COVID-19 even being a problem. And he joins a long list of world leaders um, getting sick from COVID-19, including British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, the Russian Prime Minister, several officials in Iran, uh, et cetera. And it just, to me, reinforces how serious COVID-19 and the challenge of responding responsibly to this pandemic is. And the fact that leaders, uh, whether elected or not, who deny it, the reality of the public health conundrum and the science is, is pretty clear. Jody. Yeah. So just back on your uh, Iran issue for a second, Les, which is I have to say I'm not surprised by what's happening in Iran. Right. The Iran nuclear deal, a good Iran nuclear deal was like the best option, but it wasn't the only option. So the issue that I'm following actually literally today is the re-election in Poland of President Duda. This is a really significant election for Poland and could potentially mean the termination of Poland's EU membership, uh, which is a really consequential thing for a country that gets something like 16 billion in euro in structural assistance every single year. So Poland was already in trouble with the EU for eroding democratic norms and firing independent judges, resulting in the EU commission last year pledging to stop backsliding the EU and vetting states on an annual basis. So this election pitted old against the young and urban against rural communities, but in a very very, very close election outcome. He won running on a traditional family values platform that was interspersed with homophobic, xenophobic, and anti-Semitic messaging. Uh, he literally accused his opponent, the mayor of Warsaw, of pedophilia, 
uh, being controlled by Jewish interests and anti-LGBT rhetoric was like a really like the key part of his platform. He had denounced LGBT rights as a foreign import that threatened Polish identity and campaigned against LGBT ideology and vowed to create probably for the first time ever any place in the world gay free zones as if that was actually a thing. So I think this election is monumental for Poland. Unfortunately, I think it's probably monumental for the EU and most sadly for the people of Poland themselves. Jamil. Thanks. Uh, so I'm following the uh, increasing U.S. efforts to crack down on Venezuelan oil shipping. We've seen it just in the last few weeks and months, uh, the U.S. put pressure on uh, those who certify ships uh, for insurance purposes as having met legal requirements and environmental requirements, uh, putting pressure on them to certify uh, sanctions compliance. And we've seen that driving uh, insurers out of the business of, of insuring uh, ships shipping Venezuelan oil. Uh, we've already driven uh, Venezuelan oil exports down to the lowest levels in 80 years. Uh, starving Maduro's government of its key uh, sources of cash. Uh, that being said, there's more work to be done. And we've seen Lloyd's uh, starting to withdraw its services from tankers involved in trade with Venezuela also. Um, and so uh, a real opportunity here for Elliot Abrams, who leads the effort at the State Department, uh, to really put pressure on on both American and allied uh, insurance companies and entities involved with shipping of oil. Um, and so I think that we are, we're finally having a, a salutary effect. Whether it'll be enough, with Venezuela still receiving significant support from a variety of other governments, including the Russians, uh, whether that'll be enough is hard to know. Uh, we've also seen the Iranians shipping oil to Venezuela, um, you know, to help them. And so we'll see how this all plays out. But I think an important move here in the situation with Venezuela and an increasing tightening of the screws uh, to that government yet once again. All right. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover here on Fault Lines in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. That's at M-A-S-O-N-N-A-T-S-E-C. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Joe Brambill and Suzanne Schultz for research assistance, and our own Grant Haver for being a terrific producer and director. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.